Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ, culture, and the church. Hey everyone, my name is Aaron Mansfield, and today I'm joined in the studio with my co-hosts, Morgan and Steven. What's up, everybody? Hello, everyone. Hey guys, we're glad to be with you today as we are kind of embarking on a two-part mini-series uh, in which we're entitling The Wonder of Worldview. So we hope you join us here for the whole discussion today. guys, it has been great to get back here this morning, and everybody's had a pretty fun weekend. I know my wife and I just got back uh, from a little honeymoon. Oh, I shouldn't say honeymoon. It's not a honeymoon. <laughs> it's an anniversary getaway. It is. Uh, it was. But it was like a, you know, a reminder of our Yeah, Valentine's honeymoon, right? Day. It's kind of. Is an that anniversary trip. So it's like a second honeymoon. It's like a post No, I don't think it's a second honeymoon, but it was definitely like a... Um, it was an anniversary trip. It, it was, was a an sweetheart trip. A sweetheart trip. It was yeah. Valentine's Day. It was the first time away from your new child. Am I correct? Yeah, that was the first time we had been away from Ashland for uh, three days. Hmm. And uh, man, that's not easy. That's not easy. Was there like some anxiety of like, well, wait, she's just not no, here? She was totally good because she was with my wife's parents and my sister. So like she was very well, you know, in good, capable hands. Uh, but like, I think for Jessica and I, it was like the hard part of just like not seeing her. Like this morning, even before I came in the office, she was still asleep. And I was like, I'm going to go in and wake her up because uh, I hadn't seen her in a few days. So, um, but no, we had a fun time. What was what was happening with you guys this weekend? Just hanging out. It was weird this not being a weekend with snow because that it became like a habit. We had <laughs> snow for two weekends in a row. <laughs> yeah, so it was cool. It was nice to be back um, to be able to go to church. I just I miss it so much when we are not able to meet together in person. But um, yeah, it was just a pretty chill weekend this time. So that's good, Stephen. What'd you do this weekend? My weekend was not chill, <laughs> 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 but that's because we knew it would not be chill, so it was fine. Um, this weekend was a big week uh, prepping for one of our big annual fundraisers for our student ministries here. So uh, we're doing everything online this year. So it was kind of crunch time for some of that because. It was one of those things where like you have to wait on everything else to happen before you can actually do the work. And so everything else finally happened. Uh, but it was quite a weekend. So we did that. And then um, church was amazing. Uh, we had a special service. I think that you alluded mm -hmm. to that. There's something about being back together after three weeks that it's just everybody's like, finally, you know, mm -hmm. and I, so, good. it was a good service. Uh, I did school. Um, that seems to be my life right now is school, work, and church. Um, so it was good. We, me and my wife, we celebrated Valentine's Day in a little different way. Um, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything like super like out of the box. We ordered um, like an at-home meal from Walmart hmm. and did like a pickup. What? Like Wait, what, I didn't what even is know this was possible. From Walmart, I've never heard like this. I was actually shocked. They actually have decent meat. And I did not know Walmart's meat was decent. We actually got like like petite, from the deli section, petite filet mignons. Oh, what? And then oh. like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I was shocked, man. Hey, man, stepping um, up their game. We actually, like, I guess. So we got it home, and then Emily cooked it while I did school. Uh, not very the most romantic, but <laughs> I informed her earlier on the week. I said, "Baby, out of all the years, I only got school like through December. Like, if you can give me grace this year, we will do it like all up next next Valentine's Day." So, but she like cooked it, and we had like filet mignon, mashed potatoes, asparagus, wow. mushrooms. So it was like a really good meal. Great. Like it yeah. was a meal that you would have paid like probably like 
60 70 dollars so if you, you went out for it. it like you bought the ingredients yeah at did walmart. It, did yes. it, yes. i'm thinking walmart okay. is like no no no, 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 no. Yeah, that's exactly I what like, i was thinking wow i have not heard of this yet <laughs> definitely did not do that but we did do the walmart pickup which by the way yeah. is better than kroger's pickup listen if nobody has ever used ClickList yet you mm. need to do that that is life-changing in terms and of and we're not shopping. sponsored by kroger by any means no but i'm just saying walmart. Just a, or walmart yeah <laughs> although if they want to hey you know we're always open for sponsors right <laughs> we, we did it for the first time like a couple months ago and i was like why have we been not been doing this like our entire life yeah it's my mom just put in a click list order for the first time last week and she got home and she had all these like big bags of groceries but we got to the bottom of one of them and there was this whole pack of kool-aid jammers you know like those capri suns with the <laughs> yeah. kool-aid kind she's like i didn't order this did they substitute my cream soda for this and i was like that's not even as close to the same thing so she went back and checked her order she was like oh wait I guess I did order that, but I don't recall doing it at all. So you get those funny little technology errors, I guess. You might end up with some random Kool-Aid jammers. It is definitely <laughs> worth it, though, if you haven't tried it yet. I think it would be very cool to do. Well, listen, we are actually going to kind of just jump into our topic today because uh, we're really taking two parts to talk about the wonder of worldview. Um, you know, that is something that uh, every one of us have. Every one of us have a worldview. Uh, we'll be kind of working through a definition of it here in just a minute. Um, but I think if you, for just a moment as a listener, think about uh, the society that you are living in today and how many different uh, opinions, uh, how many different um, ways of understanding um, things in life uh, there are. Um, and it seems to be, you know, and I and I think probably those who are older who are listening on our podcast probably, uh, I don't know, I would say, you know, in their 50s and 60s that have seen quite a bit of cultural shifting in America. I know when I talk to a lot of kind of grandparents, um, you know, the, the thing that they kind of say to me is that it seems like our society has just completely shifted underneath their feet. Um, in such a f short number of years. And and I think what we're trying to do today on the podcast and what we're going to be considering in these kind of two parts is um, so often we kind of see things on the surface for what we think things are mm -hmm. rather than considering the things that are actually kind of behind those things, which are far more subtle. It's, it's kind of, you know, someone wrote a, a book, I can't remember the author, but the whole point that ideas have consequences. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think we're kind of living in a day where where we see that uh, kind of taking place. What, what's your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's so funny that worldview is one of those things that is just inherent to our human experience, yet it is one of the most ignored things because it's just taken for granted that, you know, I have a worldview, you have a worldview, yet sometimes it's just not talked about because it's assumed that it's all the same. Mm. Um, and I just, mm. it's really interesting to me how it is so fundamental to our experience in in this life, yet uh, there's so many worldviews that clash and things like that. So it's it's inherent to us, yet we tend to not pay many, m much mind to it. Mm. Yeah, because we think about things that are on the surface. I mean, we're going to talk about on the season this year some really kind of sensitive topics, things mm -hmm. that really get people up in arms about. And oftentimes we, we want to once again deal with it as it's, it's just the issue. But oftentimes the, the disagreements that we see with people in politics or uh, in some of these like, you know, issues that just seem to be um, 
things that people are really struggling with today, you know, issues of um, same-sex marriage or transgender rights or uh, euthanasia. I mean, there's just so many questions that people seem to be having a difference of opinion over. And oftentimes it's it's not the issue itself. It is it is their their understanding of, of life and how they are approaching that issue. Yeah. I, in a reality, there is there is never just a surface level issue. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a lie that our society believes that if we fix this or we fix that or we fix this, somehow everything will be perfect and we'll just live in this great uh, utopian society. And that's just not true. There is no just surface level issue. It all relates back to an underlying uh, worldview. I, I think it, it's best described in like the analogy of how you think of how earthquakes happen, you know, with all the platelets and plates, not platelets, plates, <laughs> platelets are blood, plates of the earth and how they shift. And sometimes if they shift the wrong way, all of a sudden you have this extreme uh, reaction. And in reality, that is how worldviews are. They have like these plates and when something happens or there's a reaction, boom, all of a sudden all these surface level issues come out and it shows you in reality where everybody else's worldview truly is or was that is fueled this, (laughs) which is not maybe as stated. Sure. And I think, you know, you, you guys both touched on it, that surface level thinking that we all have. We're not looking at things that just only are part of a surface we're, we're talking about icebergs here these issues are never just what they appear to be on right, the surface right. icebergs 90 percent of them are still underwater so that's kind of where it falls right yeah i like that morgan that was good thinking back to the titanic there yeah. I, 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 literally was thinking, I was like she's literally like pulling a titanic on us here well, <laughs> but i think what you're getting at is you're showing that there's so many things underneath the surface from mm-hmm. people's perception that you don't see until there's kind of this uh, surface level clash. Mm-hmm, the friction, the tension. On their uh, perception. So let's just begin today by defining what is a worldview. Morgan, you are a resident DYT expert, so I'm sure you brought a definition with you today. Sure. Well, one of the simplest DYTs I could give you for worldview is simply how one views the world. That's good. And it's kind of that, you know, it's annoying because you're using both words in the definition, but really it describes itself. Your worldview is how you view the world. And this is not a literal viewing, like not how you see the world with your not eyes. physically, yeah. but philosophically. But yes, more on the, the deep internal level. It's, it's really your perception of how everything mm-hmm. is and what everything is and how that all works together. That's good. Yeah. I normally think, I, I think of, I like analogies mm-hmm. and like pictures and, and stuff. And I think of it like my pair of philosophical glasses. Uh, it's like the lenses of which I'm going to put up on my soul and my mind of which I'm going to view things. And um, too often we discount and say, oh, you know, like everybody, like you can view things different ways and all this stuff, but everyone has a worldview. Like mm-hmm. we, everyone has a lens of the soul or the mind on the philosophical level that they're viewing things. Yeah. Even if it's not stated, even if it's yeah. not stated, I think that's what we're trying to show. Like, even if it's not stated, every person has a worldview. Most of the time um, it is implicit. It's right. not really talked about. It's just assumed. Sure. And mm-hmm. so it's that question of like, what is the world story? I mean, how mm-hmm. how has the world come to be? How do I interpret where I am in this world? Um, I think it was Merriam-Webster. They defined a worldview as a comprehensive conception 
or an apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. So, you know, they're kind of picking up on, on that viewpoint. And so it's just a worldview is simply this overarching view of the world. Um, it represents kind of the most fundamental beliefs that people hold, uh, as well as kind of their assumptions Mm -hmm. to those big existential questions in life. Um, Who are we? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And, and, you know, as you're listening today, you might not have actually thought through every one of those existential questions in a very kind of uh, methodical way. And you really kind of formulated what you're saying about each one of those things. But I think just the way that we live our life, uh, like you were saying, it was kind of implicit. It's 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 these things that we do have a risk. We have a way of viewing it, even if we've not stated it to mm-hmm. be the case. Yeah. So um, let's talk a moment here about you know worldview and um, you know when I, when I think about worldview, um, we got to kind of ask the question: How is a worldview? formulated how is it made up Stephen? well it involves uh, answering questions but it, it's even deeper than that i think we want to trace it to the questions instant instantly and be like you got to ask these questions uh but in a reality it really is about how we view the story of the world and kind of tracing back through the story of everything and um i love i love like the idea of a story within a story, right? <laughs> and everything that happens is a story within the greater, um, bigger story of the world, the universe, and uh, everything that is. Which, yeah, it, and that just makes me remember a, a class I had in college. Um, when I was in college, I took a, a, a history class called historiography. And I'll, I'll never forget, I did not actually want to take the class, but I had a, a friend of mine who was encouraged me to, you know, not just have a Bible degree, but if you're thinking about going into seminary, uh, go get like a humanities minor or a, a, a humanities undergrad major as you're thinking through things. And so I did that and I ended up switching and I had to take like 13 English classes Ooh. and I had to take a whole bunch of history classes and like upper level history classes. And one of the classes that I took, probably the hardest class I ever took in college was this class called historiography. And uh, my professor, uh, Dr. Matsko, shout out to Dr. Matsko. Uh, and this guy is a legend. I mean, he, he, he's the type of guy that would just walk around campus, like walking on the sidewalks, like reading a book in Latin. I mean, he was just like... All right, I got that mental picture. Yeah, I mean, he's just <laughs> super smart. And uh, I can remember first day we come into class and in the syllabus, we had like five or six books that we had to purchase. And they were all kind of like history books. And the way the class was set up was he would assign us like insane. I mean, it was just, you know, in undergrad, it felt like an insane number of, of pages. I mean, he'd give us like 150 pages within a couple of days to like read out of all these books. And then we had to come into class and the way that he grade, the way that he like, um, graded us was it wasn't kind of like a quiz with like true or false a b c d no it was short essay uh yeah that is a classic short essay (laughs) that is and and the whole point of it was he would ask us a question out of anything about our reading so it was like oh no it was so challenging like he would just he would assign the pages ask us something out of our reading and we had to we had to, I mean, we had to understand what we read, but we had to understand it in a way because every one of those books had a little bit different take on things. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, the whole point that makes me think about that is that, you know, I can think, for instance, a, 
one one of the weeks I remember we were talking about the Civil War, and so we had all of these chapters on the Civil War we had to read, and and then we come into class, and he's asking us questions about you know uh, why the Civil War happened, and you know so you're giving your answers, but it, it, what showed me from that class is that you know a story uh, is only a story when when you see when you understand that that it's actually the facts find themselves in that story and you can't make sense of any fact unless you place it within a story because all of those um all of those books were were looking at i guess we could say the same facts mm-hmm. of the civil war i mean they had the same dates and the same places and the locations uh the facts were there if we think about them like a fact mm-hmm. But a fact is only a fact. Is you only make sense of a fact when you place it within the context mm-hmm. of a story. Mm-hmm. And so we would have like all of these different history books that considered in parentheses the same facts, mm-hmm. but they told it in a different way. And so the whole historiography class is kind of the study of history, you know. And and just because something was written, uh, you know, how historically accurate was. That. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I mm-hmm. and I think um, it's really interesting that you you mentioned the story because um, how it is and how I see this relating to worldview is that you know you can all have the same facts, but but depending on what kind of worldview you have adopted. Um, you're going to see the exact same facts in totally different ways. Is that kind of what Ex- you were getting no, at? Exactly. Because I think what we want to say when we're thinking about a worldview is, is okay, how am I making sense of the world that I'm in? And yeah. all of us are looking at the same data in the sense that we're looking out on this world with the same eyes mm-hmm. on this physical universe where we're all looking at the same facts, but but you can only make sense of those facts when you place it within a story or in a narrative. Yeah. And, I think this is where we find ourselves today is where it's really a battle of worldviews. We all want to say that it's not and that it's something else. But really, in reality, what's happening in our culture every day is a battle of worldviews. Mm-hmm. What is happening is happening. What's happened has happened. But because everyone's worldview is shifting into this um, different opinion in different way, now you're really seeing a lot of conflict, right? Because we're all looking at this happen or that happen. Take anything, take a, um, just a sociological issue, take a political issue, whatever it is, we see the same facts, but we come to a different conclusion. And, and another issue too, is the facts that are being given even now are starting to be jaded by the people who are giving the facts, which well, is one of the biggest dangers of sure. our of our modern culture and how we give facts. Well, because we've all heard person who like tells us something and they're like, hey, I'm just telling you the facts. You you're know, like, are you? But no, but the point is, is that you can't tell simply the facts <laughs> without telling a story. Sure. Um, I think probably like a modern example of this would be the whole circumstance that we are in in our country uh, with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get too, you know, political and explore your own um, worldview on, on all of these things. But, you know, there's even, even the, um, I think the reason why you see so much disagreement over what is happening today is because it's, it's people's worldview of how they are interpreting the facts mm-hmm. and the story that they're telling. Now, whether mm-hmm. or not that's a true story or a false story, um, I'm not, I'm not getting into that. All I'm trying to show you is that, um, that, you know, we're looking at the exact same facts. And so well, to your point, coronavirus is probably the most, 
I would say the best illustration of how people view the world. Yeah, I mean, it's better perfect. than anything because people will look at like the t- total number of deaths, for instance. Right. One person, based on their worldview, will say, "Oh my goodness, four hundred thousand. How many people is, have died? That yeah. is so sad." Yeah. And another person looks which, at it and says, "It is. It, it is I mean, sad. It is. I mean, we it is. A, it's extremely sad." And I would say too, the downgrade of many Christians. They're the ones who actually take the opposite view and they look at it and they say, hmm, 400,000 people died. Well, this, this, how many, however many hundred thousand or however many million people died from something else. So is coronavirus really that big of a deal? And, and yes, there is facts like that. And yes, depending on which side of the issue you fall on, sure, you can come to a conclusion. However, the facts are the same. This many people have died. And based on how you view the world, you're going to come to a different conclusion than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that just goes to show how your worldview and a worldview is a larger story for how you view everything. And the best word that comes to my mind and when we we think about worldview is framework, because Mm -hmm. it is. It's like the framework of a house or the framework of any structure. Sure. Um, Or the framework of a story. You think about a plot in a story mm-hmm. and the way that you tell that story, yep. all stories have a framework. Yeah. And there are all different kinds of parts and pieces to it, which, you know, I there are many specific questions that worldview seeks to answer. And I think that's where we get into problematic discussions when people are trying to argue based simply on the facts. And right. I think there's a lot of people today that want to try and argue somebody into believing the facts of something. And they're like, well, can't you just see this? Like, uh, look, I'm just telling you the facts. And sometimes, I mean, I'll say this even about sometimes Christian communities. Sometimes it, sometimes Christians feel like because they have truth, you know, they just want to beat somebody over the head with the facts that they know that are true. And it's like, well, maybe if I say it louder, maybe if I say it you know, more, more aggressive. forceful or aggressively, like then you will understand these facts. And, and the point is, no, people are only interpreting the facts within their story. And then you can't even tell a story without placing it within the context of this larger story, a macro story, or what we would mm-hmm. call a worldview. Yeah. And I think something that needs to be said here is continuing off of Morgan's framework, the facts is more of the walls and the studs of like a home, if you want to put it in an analogy, all the walls are built upon what? A foundation. If the foundation is not there, the walls don't matter. And in what you're saying is when you try and argue facts, walls with people, we're ignoring that the foundation is actually what affects it. Mm -hmm. Um, People's worldview is built on a foundation. And so as we kind of transition here, Mm -hmm. how do we build the foundation? I think it's answering, I personally believe, and I think that we would agree, and I think across the board people would agree, no matter what their worldview is, building a foundation of a worldview really consists of dealing with some big questions of life, Uh, more of a philosophical, some of these big existential questions of life. And so... As we're building our worldview foundation, we're not talking about facts. We're not talking about the upper parts of the building here, just the foundation. How does one do that? What are some of the questions that we need to be asking as we build our worldviews? They're kind of the big questions, right? It's it's the questions that everybody asks, whether or not they, like we were saying earlier, whether or not they really work through that in a very formative way 
can I say something yeah. really quick before we dive into the question specifically? Yeah. I think it is so important to note that these issues of worldview and how you develop your worldview is more often caught than it is taught. It is not something typically, you know, every person, every family they grow up in is different, but it's not like a parent sits down their child, goes through these mm. existential questions and imports that into them. Worldview develops as we go through experiences that challenge these questions. So we we develop it over time. And um, I took a couple of worldview classes in college. And of course, then it was taught to me, you know, these are parts of worldview. These are the existential questions. But it is it's something that you live into sort of. Mm -hmm. And I would just say in, in addition to that, and I think that's great what you said. And I, I would add to that and say, you know, yes, we're not often taught these things as kind of worldview. However, People who grew up in religious settings mm -hmm. probably were taught the answer to these existential questions in kind of the tenets of whatever religion sure. they were in. Yeah, that's and right. I think what often happens for religious people is that they, they are taught the answer to the question, but they themselves never really investigated and considered do I believe that that itself is reality? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. once again, we're talking about the world story and we're getting at what is reality itself. And the way you get to that question, uh, that answer is by asking these questions, these existential questions. Um, and, and let's just take a few of them and kind of parse through them and kind of think about what would people be asking? You know, the question of who am I? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, is, what is that question all about? Oh, man, I think that's the, <laughs> the question of all time, right? I, I think that's who am I as a, as a person, as an individual? You know, who am I as like a, a being? Sure. You know, yeah, but it deals with your identity. It's yeah. really the identity question. Yeah. It's about um, the identity, who am I, and also who am I is going to affect why am I here? Mm -hmm. um, that's another question that many people often ask is, why am I here? Well, if you don't know who you are, it's going to be hard to know why you're here, Yeah, <laughs> you know, because they're connected. Well, and I think, I think another thing that affects this who am I question is what makes me who I am? Mm. Is it everything mm. intrinsic? Is it things that have happened to me? Is it, is where it does my character come from? Yeah. It, Which I think that that is going to go back to even a bigger question. And that is, what is the nature of reality? Yeah, what's, what's real, real? and what's not? Right. Are, is this real? Is this not real? It's like, the um, Matrix. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the, <laughs> <laughs> the Matrix. I don't know if you, I'm not going to say the movie the matrix but i don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie inception oh, but like well. where you dream within dreams and i don't know how many of you have ever had this happen but one time uh, actually a couple of times but i remember one specific time in college i had this like one day where i just had like the most vivid dreams i remember falling asleep and i was in my dream and you know how you wake up in a dream and you're like doing whatever you do and then i remember in my dream i went to sleep and then i remember waking up in a second dream and i was just doing all these other things and then when i woke up I woke up in my dream again, by the way, and I was like doing things again. And then so when I actually finally woke up, it was the weirdest, <laughs> most like strange thing because I was like, okay, am I actually like alive right now? First you're asking, what did I eat <laughs> I the night like, before? What is yeah. real? <laughs> what led and up what to is this? Not? That's but crazy. I think that that kind of is how some people view it sometimes or is they're like, What's real and what's not? You yeah, know? totally. Well, and I think part of that is, you know, I'm not trying to 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 uh, I'm not trying to sim oversimplify this. However, I, I remember my uh, grandfather used to tell me, he says, Aaron, when you, when you preach to people, I know we're not preaching on the podcast, he said, but when you preach to people, he says, keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. And I think there's an element where when we start talking about philosophical things, 
um, we kind of, there's, there's this attitude that we want to kind of pull away from it because we say, man, that just seems so beyond me. It seems so challenging to kind of formulate and understand that, that we pull away from these questions rather than to kind of delving into them and, and considering, you know, the reality of, of what we're asking in the first place, you know? So it is those simple questions of who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Mm -hmm. Uh, you alluded to it, Stephen, the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? Um, is it even possible to know anything at all? I mean, these are questions that, uh, I mean, these are questions too. I think sometimes we're like, Oh, you know, that's just a cool little question. These are questions that have been asked throughout the ages. Right. Go back and read Socrates, Plato, uh, read all of these philosophers and ancient philosophers at that. And even people before them, these are questions that have been asked for thousands of years. Because your worldview is far more than what you think about. Mm-hmm. It is what you are, like what you believe and uh, what, what, what you believe and what you're willing to believe. I yeah. mean, it's that whole, like, how do you interpret life? How do you respond to things? And so what what we want to do today on part one is we want to kind of show you how a worldview is formed. Uh, we want to kind of walk through, just kind of survey the landscape and say, man, okay, this is where we are today. Uh, then in part two, what we're going to do is really begin to um, – unpack the Christian worldview, uh, the Christian story. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then in really the future episodes in this season, we're going to be talking about some issues that man really are, uh, important issues that we need to talk about today, uh, in the day that we're living in. However, we're not going to talk about them as like the issue. We're Mm -hmm. going to talk about it as the worldview that it represents. So um, let me ask you guys this question. When we think about those kind of existential questions that a worldview is seeking to answer, what does it mean for a statement or a belief or a philosophy for that matter or a religion Mm -hmm. to be true? Hmm. This is kind of almost the existential question of how do we know what is right and wrong? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, Give or take. And truth (laughs) is one of those things that if you live in today – the which I hope our listeners are living in yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we hope. We hope you're not living in a time warp talking about existential questions. Um, but no, seriously. The matrix, for, the our, for our postmodern era, you would hear many people argue that truth is relative. Um, truth is something that you cannot know, or if you can know it, only you can know it. Mm. Um, truth, however, is something that is going to have to have a standard. Uh, right. When whenever you're talking about truth, you have to have a standard of truth. Now, different people will choose different standards of true, or truth. Excuse me. Uh, for instance, as a Christian, we would use the standard of the Bible, and that is what we consider to be the standard of truth in our lives. God's mm-hmm. word. God's yeah, word. God himself. Other people who might not believe in the Bible, they would say, well, whatever is written in a factual and corroborative way. So mm-hmm. if I can corroborate the facts throughout history, I will choose to believe that it is true. Right. Um, it, it's all across the board, but truth, you can always tie it back. There it has to be a standard of truth. And even, I would argue, even in the modern era, postmodern era of relativism, there's still a standard of truth. And that's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's exactly what you're saying. No matter what worldview you're looking at, truth, it has a standard. And it, it, you know, we hate to put things into such simple categories, but there's either a truth standard that is internal, 
within the person, or there is a truth standard that is external, something outside of the person that can't be defined by just what and one person When we say says. truth, I think a better question would be reality. Sure. Because when we're talking about worldview, everybody can look at the world and 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 identify, you know, seek to identify mm-hmm. what it, what is reality. And we're coming back to asking the question, what is true? I think far too often in many Christian circles, when we talk about worldview, people think about a tenet of belief. And so they think about a list of things that I give credence to, that that now becomes my worldview. And and I think you're right, Stephen, when you talk about glasses, everybody has their own way of viewing life. Everybody has their own way of interpreting the world. However, I think a bad illustration of taking that good illustration that you used is to take it too far and to say, oh, well, when you become a Christian, then you put on these spectacles Mm -hmm. and you begin to see that this is the way that the world is from this tenet of belief. Whereas what we're really seeking to answer is what is the nature of reality itself? Is there, what is the standard of truth in the sense of um, not, because here's the problem. The word true and truth has gotten so uh, – It's laden with different connotations. Oh, my goodness. It is. It certainly is because you mentioned the word postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And I think for our listeners who may not be as familiar with that, we need to kind of t- pause here just a moment and and talk about what is postmodernism. Uh, so, Morgan, what, what is postmodernism? Shoo. Um, <laughs> so postmodernism really – I think it it can be described in a couple of different ways, but postmodernism, you know, as a movement was a shift in worldview for a large number of, you know, people and cultures as a whole. Um, and that is where, you know, and this is a personal definition, I don't have the Webster in front of me, but um, it's where the standard for what is true shifted from something external to us as people and it became internal. Okay, yeah, because even the word itself, postmodernism, mm-hmm. uh, the, what is modernism? Well, what is pre-modernism? All right, yeah. let, me, let me just give us a little, little background on some of these things. Uh, when we think about pre-modernism, uh, Douglas Gruthis in his book, he states it this way. He says, pre-modernism, pre-modern cultures typically have little or no cultural or religious diversity, minimal or no social change, have not been affected by secularization and are pre-scientific. A pre-modern society is culturally coherent. Mm-hmm. Social roles are prescribed. There is little exposure to foreigners who would endanger its way of life. And uh, Walter Truett Anderson, he describes pre-modern societies as relatively free from cultural shock experiences of coming into contact with other people with entirely different values and beliefs. So we are living in a very postmodern culture uh, here in America today. However, that has not been historically the way that the world has viewed things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, when we think about pre-modernism, you know, you you kind of think about kind of a tribesman. You think about people, largely how many people lived in medieval Europe before the Renaissance. I mean, people... were very much isolated in in communities. They had, like he describes, very or little social change. Mm-hmm. They hadn't been affected by secularization, and pretty much the way the world was uh, before uh, the Renaissance was this kind of pre what what what, what many uh, philosophical um, 
theologians and people would say is, you know, kind of before the Renaissance, we were kind of in this age of, of pre-modernism. And then something happened in the period period of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, kind of followed with the P- Protestant Reformation. And it was many people kind of look at the age of Enlightenment as kind of that beachhead for modernism. Um, where many philosophers for kind of the first time began questioning things. They began questioning uh, specifically the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church had, this papal authority, the indulgences, and and even things that, you know, Christianity itself uh, in terms of divine revelation and divine authority. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Immanuel Kant kind of captures the spirit of enlightenment in his essay, uh, which he entitled, What is Enlightenment?, and where he said the motto of the the age was dare to know, you know. Yeah. And so you kind of think about f- um, philosophers in that modern era. Um, something is happening in that era of the age of enlightenment. And I think this is kind of a big, broad brush statement. All right. But I think by and large, what was happening in the age of modernism was theism was being replaced with deism, mm-hmm. right? So what is that, Stephen? I mean... Well, theism would be the belief that there is a theistic authority, one authority. Deism would be that there is an authority that you can't know. So theism would say, I can know God. Deism would say that there is an authority out there. Don't really know much about them. Can't know much about them, but there is sure. something greater. Sure. And I love, I love to... Um, the University of Idaho, one of their professors, uh, Geyer there, he, he said this about the difference between pre-modernism and modernism. He said, on a philosophical level, it was a shift from mythos to logos. It was mm. a shift from what is myth, mythical, what I can, what, what you almost were saying, the internals to externals, to logic and to reason. How can I reason this to be so? From modernism to postmodernism. No, pre-modernism okay, yeah, to right. modernism was a shift from mythos right. to logos. And then modernism to postmodernism was a was seeking to switch back to parts of mythos kind of a while still retaining parts right. of logos. Mm-hmm. Right. So think about it this way, because I think, I think to, to make it kind of really simple is you know, by and large, the way that the world was before the age of enlightenment was, once again, this is a very broad brushing statement, but by and large, uh, people had a belief in a creator, uh, a God who uh, gave revelation, who was, uh, they, they, they looked at things like providence and things and and yet in that shift of modernism where we come away from, oh, yeah, we'll believe in a creator, but without revelation, without mm-hmm. providence, without the incarnation, God coming into this world, it led to so much naturalism. And right. you see in that age of modernism, things like uh, Darwin and uh, all, all, all of that type of naturalism really taking center stage when you begin to remove God uh, from revelation and providence. Now, well, we will give assent to, yes, there, there might be, there might be, uh, some God who is, uh, a creator. He, he, he in some way formed and fashioned the world, but, but he's really removed from it in mm-hmm. that sense. And I, I think we would be remiss not to take note of what the role of technology 
has played in the advancing of these worldviews into these different eras. Um, just because we are no longer pre-modern doesn't mean that there is a large majority of the world that, still is. that is still pre-modern. And right. so with the printing press and exchange of ideas and when it became more easily accessible, when books began to be published in mass, this is where you got to see it kind of did take an air of mysticism mm -hmm. off of things and recognizing, you know, the revelation or, you know, what scientific, what, exactly scientific and enlightened. If you were not either of those things, then you were living in a bygone era mm -hmm. by many of these opinions to where almost if, 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 if what you could see could not be um, reproducible in the right. sense of a scientific way, then it can't mm -hmm. be believed as factual or exactly. as true. Yeah. And, and so, Go yeah, ahead, Stephen. Yeah, I was just going to say, and this is really super visible today, not always on the philosophical level, but especially on like the sociological le level, because you can go to still parts of the world, mm -hmm. like what you said, who have a more pre-modern mindset, and you can see that they still have many of the tenets of pre-modernism. They would have that more mythos mentality of like myth or what is internal, and they would also be very communal. And not very individual, mm. which is something that is unheard of in our mm. American society. There's no such thing. We all want true community. And like that's the big touch button right now, I feel like, is everybody needs their community. We need their community. But nobody is willing to actually see that their worldview many times prevents them from having community because they're so individualistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And and so where does that shift then, mm -hmm. you know, from modernism to now postmodernism? Yeah. Uh, many, many people would look to Nietzsche uh, mm -hmm. as kind of a top candidate. And you say, well, who's Nietzsche? Well, he was, you know, a philosopher. And one of the things that he was advocating for in his day was what he ascribed to be the death of God. Mm -hmm. um, and you really take that concept, that idea that Nietzsche put forward, that no longer truth is objective, is knowable, because once again, if, if we remove the source of truth, God himself, mm -hmm. then truth is no longer knowable or objective. The postmodern thinker uh, has really distorted that understanding into saying, well, truth is no longer knowable by anyone. Right. Um, because truth is, once again, it's not revealed to us. It is not given to us. It's not above us. So uh, once again, it's it's this idea that Truth is simply what we as individuals mm -hmm. or what we as communities make it to be and nothing more. Right. And I and I think I want to clarify what I was meaning by internal and external, Stephen, because I I was just recognizing I probably didn't do that very well. But like what you were saying um, with the loss of objectivity, that's to me when it it shifted internally because now everything's subjective, whereas before, you know, pre-modern times or whatever that having that objectivity makes it external to the self. Yeah, because the postmodern thinker would be somebody who would see uh, really a disjunct between the signifier, meaning language, and the signify the reality. Or I think Francis Schaeffer, he, he put it in a really clear way that gives help to understand. He's the man. He, he said this. He says, he says, it's important to distinguish the content of truth, what statements are true, from the concept of truth, of what is true. Ooh. And uh, or or what truth is, um, so once again, I'm, I'm going to give a statement here by Gruthis. Uh, he he talks about this. He says he says in many ways, modernism paved the way for postmodernism, mm -hmm. not only in denying the objective reality of divine mind, but also in denying that the human mind 
is an immaterial metaphysical entity apart from the physical brain. Naturalistic science deconstructs the mind such that it becomes nothing more than biology determined by biochemical processes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is he saying? Boil it down for us, Morgan. What What's happening in postmodernism? Postmodernism is a launching point back into materialism. What we see is what is, and we can only rely on our senses and what we can test, what we can touch, what we can observe. And it is, it's, it's taking away the questionability, the mysticism of, you know, Matter, the physical things of matter is all there is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, uh, I like uh, how this guy puts it. By the way, he's not a Christian, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> the way he puts it is very enlightening. Um, the guy I quoted earlier from the University of Idaho, um, Geyer, he kind of walks through. And by the way, earlier when I was talking about mythos and logos, I was basically, we were talking about how in pre-modern times, it was much more of a belief, an internal belief that translated to, I must be able to reason. And mm, that was the good. modern time. Mm. And then post-modernism, he says, is where people, they want to reconstruct reason, oh. which means that you have to deconstruct it. So he would actually argue that post-modernists are not about no truth. They want truth, but they have to reconstruct it. But the only problem with that is, this is from the mouth of a postmodernist, I would, I would say from the way he is arguing is that in order to reconstruct reason, you must deconstruct the majority of reason. And then the only problem is when you've deconstructed all reason and you reconstruct reason, there is so much subjectivity in how reason is reconstructed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is why there's such a big pushback from many people, including people that are Christian, but some who aren't even against this relativistic type mentality of word. we can just um, do whatever we need to do and we can deconstruct it all and reconstruct it all. And I think some people that just isn't, it doesn't, it's not cohesive with their worldview because no. they're yeah. like, yep. there is a standard of truth. So we can't deconstruct all standards and then reconstruct. No, it. And yeah. I, think, I think a good way to illustrate that is think about people who once again are maybe in their older, the older generation. Mm. I don't know what that defines that to be for you, but I think people who, okay, let's say, let's just say 30, 40 years ago, by and large, the way that people tried to evangelize non-Christian people was they came back to a list of propositions of what is true. Mm -hmm. So they would start, you know, it, this is, this is all of the evangelistic methods of you know the previous generation the 1970s 1980s it's it's the romans road it's the four spiritual laws it's the um you think so much of you know billy graham and his crusades and you know we think about his invitations that he would give so much of that uh type of evangelism in that type of way the 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 romans road the four spiritual laws that type of understanding begins with this pre-assumption mm -hmm. that people share at least a commonality mm -hmm. of worldview, that mm -hmm. people still at that time recognize that there was a creator, even though they did not know him personally, uh, that they understood the world was formed in such a way that 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 man will give an account to that creator. Mm -hmm. And so what did, what, did, what, what did we need to do? We needed to remind people of where they were and how they could come to know 
gone. Yeah. They right. needed once again. They needed to admit their sins and they needed to, to repent of their sins, right? And they needed to turn to Christ and and to believe in Him. But mm-hmm. but but those are the propositions of the gospel. And I'm, I think the struggle with people today in their modern evangelism is that people are no longer the younger generation today does not share that common worldview. Yeah. That once again, like just because you know everybody has their own individual worldview, we, everybody has a certain way of looking at life. However. There is a kind of a common thread that runs through many of our worldviews uh, that that we kind of see life the same way as people. You were going to say something there. Yeah, I was just going to say you hit it dead on. No longer are people coming to the table with even the same presuppositions. So that's why this type of it just doesn't work anymore because people aren't coming with the same assumptions and the same understanding. The landscape has shifted. It works for the people that still have that worldview. Sure. Yeah. I would push back and say that it does work, but you have to know who you're evangelizing. You have to know who you're evangelizing and who you're witnessing to. And I think that that goes back to as well as here's just a side note. Okay, since we're talking about evangelism and worldview, and we're here, yeah, we kind of pause there. Take just, a side yeah, note because <laughs> this needs to be said since we're on the topic. When, as a Christian, and again, we're taking a pause from the worldview as a Christian in the Christian worldview. We have done a terrible job in this modern culture of giving into the instant result culture that we live in. And we think that Mm, if somebody doesn't respond to our evangelism on the first take, that it immediately was a failure. And we need to go back to understanding sharing the gospel, the Christian worldview with somebody is a process. That's right. And we must know who we are witnessing to and sharing to Mm -hmm. and then share to them effectively. And in our postmodern culture, that requires helping people to ask certain questions, not just giving them the walls to the building. You don't want somebody just to, you know, that's so good, Stephen, because you don't want somebody when you're sharing the gospel to simply share it and have them check every one of those boxes as if I will do that now, or I will believe that now. There's been so many young people that I've shared the gospel with that in the course of our conversation, after I give them the opportunity to respond to Christ, they say, you know, I'm just not ready yet. And and I think, you know, once again, I kind of work through that in the own way that I uh, have typically, and I kind of ask them, well, why aren't you ready yet? And ask them some more clarifying questions. But I think there's a lot of people today, young people in particular, that are would want to make a decision for Christ, but they're at least honest enough to recognize that they want it to be a part of their totality of their belief of who they are. Which means it's actually going to be an authentic decision right. as opposed to just getting somebody to say something right. or do something, which is what you don't want. <laughs> well, we, 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 many people came out of the generation that, you know, I think we hadn't seen really the full effects of a post postmodern <laughs> culture really yet. And, and by and large, there was still a, a large group of people that had somewhat of a similar worldview. And, and so you see so much of, you know, identifying the tenets of the Christian faith and how those contradict uh, other false tenets of other false religions. And the the problem with all that is that, you're not helping people understand the story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Christians that have identified a lot of pieces of the Bible and they've heard of truths, you know, in, quint- yeah. in parentheses. They've heard of different truths or moral statements, but they don't understand the framework of how the story of the Bible 
mm-hmm. is actually communicating something about God, mm-hmm. about yeah. this world, and about them. Yeah. Um, I think C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, I know we've oh, referred to that I quite a bit here recently. I <laughs> But there's there's a portion in the book where Screwtape, once again, he's this, this senior demon, and he's kind of instructing this lower-ranking demon, Wormwood, on the art of deception. And instead of using these kind of logical arguments to keep someone from following Christ, Wormwood is advised to keep the person's mind off the very idea of sound reasoning leading to true conclusions. Because this is what Screwtape says. He observes this. He says, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incapable philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn, contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Then he says this, and I think it's so profound. He says, jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Now, what he's what he's stating is really kind of a postmodernism, mm-hmm. um, deconstructive uh, way of, of looking that truth just kind of dissolves into these endless possibilities and these endless perspectives. And he's not, he's trying to keep him facified with all of these kind of, uh, philosophies of academic, practical, outworn, contemporary, you know, rather than having him have a really logical, uh, way of leading to true conclusions. Because as long as it's kept intellectual, it doesn't stick to you and it doesn't affect you. Exactly. It's outside of you. I can. I don't have to worry about sure. it. Yeah, it's all <laughs> sure. dancing around up here. It so, doesn't touch the heart. That's, that's good. That's good. So I think what we're going to do is we're really gonna, just going to leave you on a cliffhanger today. Because what we hope we have done, hope we've done together as you're listening today, is we've talked about what is a worldview, what are some of those existential questions that formulates that worldview. And once again, you know, a fact uh, is only a fact in the context of a story. And and a story is only makes sense in really a context of a larger story, mm-hmm. a larger uh, meta narrative or a worldview. And, um, and so what we're going to do actually here is um, what we want to do is we want to pause because uh, we want to come back next time and talk about the Christian worldview and what is it about the Christian worldview that is so unique um, to completely, completely different uh, to how many people uh, view life? Uh, because, you know, just as Lewis was talking about uh, th- that a person's understanding, you know, there are quite a number of worldviews that are just incoherent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we always look at them and we're like, oh, that person's actions is just so erratic. Well, their actions are probably erratic because their worldview is erratic, or they don't really understand their worldview at all. Yeah. And so they have they they have one, but it's it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you have an erratic worldview, you'll have erratic actions. And so there are incoherent worldviews. There are worldviews that they just don't necessarily fit sometimes. And when you push back on someone's worldview, they're like, "Oh wow, okay, I've never really thought of that before," you know. But there are consistent and there are logical worldviews. And I think our goal in the next episode is to really show that Christianity is a coherent worldview, but it is also a nuanced worldview. It is coherent, but it is very specific in the way that it is coherent and works together. Yeah. So right before we kind of just sign off here, any any last minute thoughts on all that we've talked about today? I mean, we've been all over the place, <laughs> but, about I, a lot today. but I do hope that, um, you know, people have a better understanding now rather than hearing worldview. You know, yeah. that's a world that a word 
they get so tossed around. Mm-hmm. But maybe now they have a better understanding of, of, of what it's doing, what it's communicating. Yeah. I'm My final wrap-up thought is just hang with us. It's going <laughs> to yeah. be okay. I know this is a little heady, but it's important. And yeah, this is yeah. really, really important stuff. So just hang with us for the next episode. <laughs> I would encourage the listener too, that if you have never asked some of these questions and actually answered them in um, a personal way, I would encourage you to do so. I'll tell you that my personal Christian worldview, which is what I have, I have a biblical Christian worldview. I believe in the Bible and I'm a Christian and that effect, that is my worldview. It did not actually take root into my heart until I answered some of these questions for myself personally. For a while growing up, it was, hey, this is what I've been taught, this is what I've been taught. It wasn't until I was in high school when I started asking some of these questions and actually seeking answers for myself to them and having the answers, not just that I was told, but that I actually sought out. Mm -hmm. That was when my worldview really took charge of my life, if you wanna put it that way, and really took root in my life. And I would encourage the listener, um, whether you're a Christian or not, ask these questions and really seek um, seek answers to them. But I think the reason many people don't in, in a really honest, soul-searching ter- soul way is because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're afraid to Most definitely. ask those questions. Which we shouldn't be afraid because if you have a coherent and logical worldview, it should withstand those questions. It's mm-hmm. good. Um, we're not saying to like just throw out your worldview willy-nilly. Sure. What we're saying is... Ask, ask these questions because I believe if you have a logical, consistent worldview, it will withstand those questions. And I believe it'll get meaning the biblical, and answer to those yeah. things. Yeah. I believe yeah. the biblical worldview is the one that does it the most and the most coherently and the most specifically out of all of them. Mm-hmm. That's good. No, yeah. and that that is our that is our understanding here that it is the Christian worldview, the Christian story that is the most nuanced and it's the most comprehensive worldview and it is actually that worldview that we will plan to explore on our next podcast so we hope you'll join us there next time thank you for listening to where we land christ culture and the church listen if there's anything you've heard us talk about on the show today that you would like to know more about we'd love to hear from you so send us your thoughts questions or feedback by sending us an email at podcast at where we On our next episode, we will be continuing our discussion on the wonder of worldview. So we look forward to seeing you here next time.